You're listening to a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Laura Tingle, political editor of the Australian Financial Review. Laura is also an author and an essayist. Her latest book, called In Search of Good Government, is out via Black Ink. It features three essays, one called Great Expectations, the next Political Amnesia, and finally, the essay that is the newest and most recent is about Turnbull in power and the way he and his government governs. It was a fascinating and big-picture look at Australian politics across the decades and most recently in the latest coalition government. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins and uh, we are absolutely blessed to have the wonderful Laura Tingle with us from Canberra. She's written a few essays and a couple of them you may be familiar with. They're still absolute classics. You can read them and it was like they were written yesterday because they are just so current and they really take a wonderful step back to look at the broader picture and the historical developments that have uh, happened in terms of the way that we govern ourselves and do politics. And uh, Laura has also written a new essay on Turnbull in Power, which is featured in this book, In Search of Good Government, out via Black Ink, but is also available to read via the monthly as well. So thank you very much, Laura, for joining us. G'day, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I know you've been very busy um, making trips up to Sydney and whatnot, so thank you for sharing uh, your time and, and views with us. My pleasure. So you've got this wonderful collection of essays out at the moment. It's just uh, recently released. It's called In Search of Good Government and it features a couple of your quarterly essays which are, I mean, they're standalone amazing. Um, so it's wonderful to have them in one tome for people to really reread. And I, I reread both, but in particular, Great Expectations stood out to me because of the way that it's still so relevant in terms of this disconnect of the public's expectations of what government can do for it and also the politicians' lack of clarity as to what they can and should deliver on. So I'd really like to, if we can, take a step back to that essay. And, I mean, you do some really interesting historical research around the idea that the way that we govern ourselves and our expectations of government were formed even before federation. It was in the the 19th century in Australia that the way that we governed ourselves as a colony evolved and that mm. a lot of those expectations are still ingrained. I mean, could you mm. share with us some of what you discovered and what your thoughts are on, on that and the influence mm. of the earliest um, ways of governing in Australia? Sure. Uh, look, it's interesting, isn't it, that that first essay was uh, which I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, writing, partly because of the sort of journey it took me on. It's always a terrible cliche, isn't it? But um, when 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 I started to think about you know how what is it that we uh, think government is and what what do we think it does for us, I thought, well, you know, what's the history of this in Australia? So I went back and looked, and as you say, uh, really just went right back to the first fleet and. What I sort of ended up coming up with and arguing in the essay was that, you know, we've got this real history of uh, sort of quite uh, significant state paternalism uh, in Australia. We like to sort of see ourselves as rugged individuals and all that sort of stuff, but right back to the First Fleet, if you think about it, you know, we were this penal colony, 
government as such was uh, was sort of was basically overwhelming. The the, uh, the convicts had to rely on um, on on the uh, the officials of the day to feed them, and and quite happily did so. I, I used a lot of research from um, the late. Uh, historian John Hurst, uh, which is absolutely fascinating about both the convict period and the early colonial period, and how our relationship uh, with uh, with England also really framed our thinking. You know, we're always sort of looking to England to be given some extra powers as, as the colony developed, and sort of we're basically always having to sort of beg to be allowed to govern ourselves. Um, and it it did make us very sort of compliant and you know and uh, our economy was very uh, government centered of course right up until the era of Macquarie uh, and and beyond so I, I think we really underestimate the extent to which this is really ingrained in us there's been a lot of focus on the post federation settlement uh, in the wake of Paul Kelly's book in the 1990s um, about deregulation, you know, about the fact that we had these centralised wage systems, we had protection all around. They were new manifestations of this state paternalism, but as a sort of a social sort of mindset, it really does go right back to the earliest days um, of the colony. And I don't think it ever really left us. And this is why I argue that in the, the what's happened in the 1980s, where suddenly we deregulated the economy and sort of said the private sector knows best and all those sorts of things, it, it was just too hard a habit for people to break, both politicians and people, to expect that um, the government still couldn't basically influence the way our lives ran. Yeah, you raise a great point that uh, it is in the colonial era that we see these developments and there was an abundance of labour in terms of people available to do the work so they inherently had greater power to push back on those wanting them to do the work um, so there were a few slackers who didn't really want to pull their weight but also then when you get to the, uh, the 1980s and you see the Hawke and Keating era you talk about the fact that transport, banking, electricity, water insurance and telecommunications were once wholly owned or heavily shaped by major publicly owned institutions. So, you know, government control up to the 1980s was prevalent throughout all of our essential services, really. Um, So, I mean, even coming up to recent history, it's understandable perhaps that it still continues our expectations um, and this disconnect that we've now have since the changes that were made by Hawke and Keating and, you know, the privatisation of many of those services, if not all of them, really. Well, I I think that's right. I mean, uh, and I I suppose it's sort of a shock. You've got to sort of adjust uh, your sort of thinking about this to realise that for a lot of people now, they they wouldn't know that all of these things were actually once done by government. But absolutely, you know, the sorts of uh, exasperated conversations you have now with Telstra or um, your electricity provider or your insurance company, you were once having uh, those arguments with arms of government, but instead of the private sector. Um, And it just gives you a sense of how extensive the role of government was. And when they were in these sectors, there weren't clear price signals. There were lots of cross-subsidies. So the sort of sense that you might actually be paying a lot of money for a lot of services um, was not necessarily all that prevalent. Um, but 
you know, the government was in banking, owned the Commonwealth Bank, uh, and it was there to basically provide sort of a, not just competition, but to provide a sort of a base for, against which the other banks had to compete, if you know what I mean, that that uh, it, it was there to sort of keep the others honest. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think it, I, the mindset involved in that, I think, is uh, is really fascinating. I agree because you almost get a sense now that there's a nostalgia for publicly owned services and that people now with this sense of um, feeling out of control or at least the government having less control, it feels as if sometimes it would be much easier to just go back to when uh, government was responsible and could control some of these uh, key essential elements that affect everyone in Australia. Obviously, that's an unrealistic and perhaps unproductive thought to have, but it seems almost a, a bit instinctive within the Australian mm. electorate. Do you think that? Well, I think there's two really two fascinating uh, aspects to this, Amy. One of them is that uh, you can see in the budget which we had last week that the government itself has come to the view that people do like governments doing stuff. You know, that's a really clear underlying message of, of the budget. But I think there's sort of a second issue, which is there's also sort of a, a certain sense um, in the you know across the community that there are some things that maybe the government just does do better. You know, that there are these markets which you can't replicate in the private sector because they're oligopolistic or monopolistic. And so you've now got the government saying, well, we're going to build, own and operate the second Sydney airport. Why is that? Well, it's because Sydney airport uh, was sold off, as were most of the others um, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and it's now this fairly sort of spectacular spectacular monopoly which was given the right to say whether Sydney could have a second airport and strangely enough you know who would have guessed it said oh no no we're not going to build the second airport mm. so well, the government has had to intervene against its own against government's own original decision if you like to say well but that's not going to happen we're going to actually set up a second airport and we're going to run it because otherwise it's not going to get built so it's sort of coming the full circle where governments have to actually do have to intervene. Um, you know, it was once the case that the argument was made that oh, if we leave the private sector to do things, you'll get these outcomes that won't happen with governments because governments can't afford to do this stuff. But in fact, now it's coming full circle and they're saying, no, governments have to do these things because the private sector won't because the uh, incentive isn't there for them. Indeed. Well, in a in a profit-driven, um, shareholder-focused environment, there's naturally different motivations to do projects than there are for government. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it became unfashionable to think that, um, you know, that, that there, were, there were these different incentives and sometimes, uh, you know, the incentives uh, running governments were much better uh, or, you know, were, were equally uh, acceptable um, and, and everything had to be uh, via the, the private sector model. And I just think around the world you're seeing a reversion to this. And, and in some ways... You know, even Donald Trump represents that. You know, it's, he's, he's promising to fix things for people, um, mm. uh, you know, get them their jobs, uh, you know, intervene in, uh, in the economy in all sorts of ways. So it's, it's a bit of a continuum there.
Definitely. And the, those reforms in the Hawke Keating era, such as deregulating our economy and opening up Australia to the world financially, mm. have really increased and propelled globalisation. And, you know, we ha- are seeing the backlash, I guess, of the decreased control or national control that we have over how we interact with other states and with other markets as well. And mm. in that essay, you say that in the failure to break down the habits of state paternalism, we have have the seeds of much of our modern national anger. And you opened that essay with this uh, great anecdote uh, about Amanda Vanstone and you were having a meal with her in in Italy and this idea of Australians as being angry is quite an odd one because people and ourselves, we we often think that we're very laid back and, you know, pretty non-confrontational. But there's something about this which I think continues and has almost increased in recent times, this anger that we have about politics and policy and our politicians and and I mean most of that anger is directed at the politicians themselves Mm. and uh, I'm just interested to see first of all uh, we'll get to how the implications of that are for Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership Mm. but first of all um, looking more broadly you ask do we Australians understand that government no longer has the control of things it it once did and Mm. um, and that it has less ability to fund services are we comfortable with this idea or do we need to have a discussion about actually what do we think government's role is in Australian society? Do we need to, to reassess or have a realistic discussion and look at what is the role of government for both a Labor and a coalition government? And I know that's probably dreaming pretty big, but um, would that solve some of the, the disconnect, do you think? Well, I, I think that it's actually, I mean, as you say, I, I wrote this um, a few years ago now, but um, it, to me, it's, it's all sort of basically coming true. I mean, I think that's what, exactly what we're doing at the moment. We're, we're having this discussion about the role of government um, where, where you've got, um, in the last week in particular, the coalition saying, yes, we, we do understand that people want government to look after, uh, look after them, you know, whether it's you know, embracing Medicare, the NDIS, um, putting taxes up to do to, to do those uh, public services, um, and I think a lot of, as I say in the essay, there's um, a lot of this anger is about the fact that politicians have continued to talk over the last thirty years um, as if they're controlling things when they haven't been. So the sort of sense of disappointment is greater. And um, I mean, uh, one classic example would be both. Uh, on housing affordability um, and uh, and interest rates, uh, more specifically over the years, uh, you know, where both sides of politics have basically claimed credit for low interest rates and blamed the other side for high interest rates. When in fact, you know, if there's one price signal uh, in the economy that they haven't been controlling in the in the last ten or twenty years in particular, it's interest rates. So. That's an example of a sort of disconnect. The same thing with the debate about housing affordability. Now, uh, Labor has sort of said that it would uh, do negative gearing changes and capital gains tax changes to help housing affordability. Uh, the government has had a, a different proposal, which is you know, nowhere near as radical. Uh, but whatever the proposals are, you know, this suggestion that somehow governments can step in and you know, dramatically change the housing market is probably not very realistic. And Scott Morrison, the Treasurer, has been sort of facing the backlash of that because 
he's now saying, well, look, there's not all that much we can do, but we can change things along along at the margin. But people have sort of expected the government to be able to sort of click its fingers and make, make things better. Um, and that just seems pretty unrealistic um, in, a, in housing markets of the sorts of sizes uh, that we've got uh, in Australia, um, you know, in the modern era. Indeed, and um, that they can solve uh, wage growth and, you know, that can be done through company tax cuts is also questionable. You're talking about, I guess, the things that politicians can't do. There are some things they can do that they choose not to do. Do you think that's where some of the anger comes from, is that, well, even the levers that you have, you're choosing not to use? Um. What, what did you have in mind? Well, such as capital gains tax is one of those. Yeah. I think you mentioned in your newest essay that they really they ruled out changes to the CGT, um, mm. you know, pretty early on when Labor had opened the door for them to do something. And perhaps yeah. that maybe closing that door is unhelpful for them now or even into the future. Um, yeah, well, I think people do get that sense. Um, and this has been one of the things about Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership, you know, that he is seen as being like this do-nothing guy and that, that he's hemmed in, you know, and I think people get uh, really angry because they feel that he's just completely nobbled um, and has allowed himself to be nobbled um, by his conservative wing on social policies uh, and uh, and nobbled um, in sort of the economic terms as well by uh the sort of coalition constituency. Yes, I think people sort of want to believe that you can take a policy action and it will have some sort of effect. Of course, whether it actually would have an effect or not, you know, it's not entirely clear, but capital gains tax is a real example of something where I think they could have done a lot more without it being uh, a retrospective measure. Uh, It would have been a much better signal in the economy to what is without doubt a a, a huge overinvestment in housing. And the fact that they don't do it um, is is frustrating for people. But I think, I suppose the essay is more making an underlying point about this sort of sense of what, you know, trying to define what it is governments should do in either way, not necessarily about individual policy measures and whether they take them. Indeed. But um, as you say, we're having, I guess, an indirect discussion about what government now can do with this turnaround in, in you know, talking about um, deficit and surplus and the need to actually raise revenue is a, is a new change. And obviously raising revenue means that government does have a bigger role to play. Let's looking at your, your new essay um, that's out and people can read this in the book In Search of Good Government as well as through the, the monthly, uh, the latest edition of the monthly and you talk about Malcolm Turnbull's leadership style and his mode of operating and doing government Mm. and first of all you you point out that we don't have the uh, bad Malcolm in inverted commas um, the the kind of Malcolm that we saw uh, when he was opposition leader who um, had a bit of a a temper sometimes and um, a bit <laughs> no, no. Sorry, I, yeah, I was yep. um, underplaying that a little, but uh, yes. yeah. So yep. you know that that is a development and a change, um, an evolution, if you will, um, in terms of the way that uh, Malcolm Turnbull is conducting himself as Prime Minister. So mm-hmm. um, that is one positive, but also that 
Um, you, you talk about the fact that little attention has really been paid to the mechanics of how Malcolm Turnbull is running his government and he came in talking about restoring a cabinet government and, um, you know, implementing proper process and also not only advocating for policy but explaining why we needed it and, you know, making that case for change. I mean, do you think that that mode of operation um, is currently how... Turnbull is is conducting himself and his government? Hmm. Uh, well, there, there are a few things. One of them is um, that I think he, he, ha- he has been... Uh, he, he has gone to great lengths to try to do what he said in some ways, like re-establishing Cabinet government. What does that mean? It means letting ministers get on with the job, um, making uh, sort of uh, collective decisions uh, about things... I think he has tried as much as possible to actually implement that and uh, that's been both good and bad for him <laughs> and for us. Um, you know, you've got somebody who's very, a very competent minister like Simon Birmingham, the education minister. Uh, you know, whether you like what, the, what he's now put forward, he's found a way of repositioning the government on higher education and schools funding. Other ministers, you know, I don't know why George Brandis comes to mind, you know, not so successful, but, you know, you've, you've got to sort of not just look at a, a prime minister, you've got to look at an entire government um, and its various parts. I think one of the really interesting things, going back to your sort of summary of what he said he was going to do when he came in that hasn't worked, which is sort of a bit surprising to me, is that he hasn't been a very good explainer. In fact, he's a terrible explainer. Uh, he, considering he's a, a barrister by by background and and was a journalist for a while he's not a very good advocate uh he he often doesn't articulate positions particularly well he can either as they say mal explain and over explain some issue or not explain it at all um and i think you know that's a bit of a that's a fairly sort of fundamental flaw if you're a prime minister uh and or a politician so uh and he's and he's not a natural politician either he's not particularly good at politics so you know it's a a mixed bag but I think uh, I I felt in the essay that it was time that we sort of just go well what is this guy actually doing Uh, how's he operating because you know people get angry about the fact that he doesn't do things um, or that you know he is seen as compromised but they don't actually sort of think about how he approaches things Mm. and to me one of to me one of the really fascinating questions is you know he is he sort of sees himself as this problem solver who sort of comes into the office every day and this sort of fits in with what he's always done, you know, and said, okay, what's today's problem, you know, and how do we go about fixing it? And whatever the solution is, by doing that rather than starting at some overall strategic position and sort of flotting bits into it, uh, you know, it doesn't sort of really sort of lend itself to having some, you know, really clear strategic plan either politically or in a policy sense and, you know, it, it's hard to see how that works for him. But having said that, I think, you know, the interesting thing about the budget is that it does give the government a fairly coherent sort of new story to tell between now and the next election and, and, and a plan of sorts um, and a repositioning. Uh, and I think that all of those things reflect the fact that it was a collective strategy, if you like. It was put together by the Cabinet, by the senior members of the government, not just by Malcolm Turnbull. And they're singing, as they say, from the same song sheet for the first time in a very long time. That you know, Everybody's basically agreed on what should be going on. 
Yes, absolutely they are. It's quite surprising. Um, And you raised some great points there about um, the deficits in terms of Turnbull's leadership and his communication and also skills to be political and set a strategic agenda. I mean, it is true that as you say, um, we shouldn't be measuring this government by the Prime Minister only. It should be, you know, the collective because it is a team effort. But one of the interesting things you say, um, and you've mentioned there, is his idea about problem solving. You say that he's somewhat of a deal maker. He comes in and he identifies a problem, he assesses the current evidence and an issue, and then responds with a solution that's timely and of that moment. And, and that's how. Now there's some, um, in his mind, disconnect or surprise that people are disappointed with his changing position on climate change. And you highlight that, um, and I find that particularly telling, is that, uh, you know, he initially advocated for an emissions trading scheme and at the time that was the, the right thing to do um, and it, there were, it was ripe. Um, Australia was ripe for an ETS. And then you go on to say, well, circumstances have changed and perhaps... Australia isn't ripe for that or, you know, he's reassessed the evidence afresh and thinks that there should be a new direction, but he hasn't really communicated it. How does he see himself and his his changes in policy position as dealmaker, Malcolm? Mm. Well, uh, he said in an interview with me in December, look, you know, ideology is just people who won't look at facts, you know, <laughs> um, and... Uh, You know, his position on something like climate change keeps morphing. And for him, he would say to you now, look, look look where we're going. You know, I'm I'm actually doing quite a lot for renewables uh, because I'm, you know, pumped hydro is is the huge thing. You know, that's that's going to be a huge renewable energy source. He's very keen on wind power. He thinks that the market um, uh, is just looking after itself on photovoltaic. Uh, solar power. Um, so he would sort of say, look, this is all basically heading where we probably want it to go anyway. But he's now obsessed about gas, you know, and the fact there isn't any gas uh, for a, you know, a range of reasons for which both sides are responsible. Um, and so he argues that sort of the latest manifestation of the emissions trading scheme, which is the so-called emissions intensity scheme for the uh, electricity generation sector, the, the, the rationale for that also doesn't work if you don't have uh, a ready gas supply, which we don't. So Malcolm Turnbull's always sort of looking at where things are up to and sort of saying, well, what's the, what's the best outcome we can get in the circumstances, rather than saying, you know, well, this is where we want to end up and what do we have to do to get there, if you know what I mean. He's, he's sort of work, working from the other end of the, of the, uh, of the question. Mm. And, and uh, if, if you're thinking about, you know, this going back to the sort of uh, Great Expectations essay, ultimately, you know, governments, people are looking to governments to say, this is where we want to go. And um, Malcolm Turnbull doesn't really necessarily ever say that. He's saying, well, let's just see what, what uh, what's going on at the moment and uh, work out, you know, what's the best we can make of it. And I think that's uh, something that people find a, a, a somewhat disconcerting sort of approach. And, you know, it, it'll be fascinating to see if it works for him um, because it does seem to be in some ways the antithesis of what politicians do.
Indeed, it's completely um, against our expectations of, of what a leader of the country would be doing. You know, we would ex- expect them to set the strategy and the agenda and, and have an idea of the horizon that we're moving towards. And I guess in, initially in the earlier stages of Malcolm, um, we saw some kind of vision or at least maybe it was the way that he uh, he presented it that it, w- it was about I have a vision I want to Australia to be an innovation nation and to be agile and and using all that kind of terminology and framing has set an expectation um, that perhaps he can't deliver upon using his current leadership style do you think that there's perhaps reason to alter um, his leadership style if if possible well, I suppose there are a couple of things. One of them is that one of the points I make in this uh, sort of most recent essay uh, is about this whole sort of prime ministerial soap opera. You know, the fact if you if you top a prime minister, you know, reasonably regularly, you know, the discussion changes from being will the government win the next election to will the prime minister survive till the next election, and that's applied to what the last three or four prime ministers. So it all becomes about him and how he survives, but. One of the questions I ask in the essay is, well, you know, what's the appropriate time frame that we give people to establish themselves as prime ministers in circumstances where they've come in in an abnormal uh, way? Because, you know, as we've seen with um, Julie Gillard and with um, Malcolm Turnbull, we get this uh, thing where they get locked in by the previous incumbents' policy positions and it's very hard for them to just dump everything and start all over again. So it's taken Malcolm Turnbull really until this budget, almost two years into his prime ministership, before he's been able to you know, re-establish a new platform, if you like, of his own government that wasn't just completely bogged down by stuff uh, that were sort of legacy issues of, of Tony Abbott. So one of the questions is, where, where do we start judging Malcolm Turnbull from? Uh, and two, you know, do we watch how Prime Ministers develop in the job? Now, I think he's probably become better at being Prime Minister than he was 12 months ago, uh, certainly better than he was in the federal election campaign. And all Prime Ministers do develop over time. I mean, the first couple of years of the Howard government were atrocious. They were just, you know, one political debacle after another. Whether or not you thought his subsequent policies were good or bad, that they were very well managed. So... It's possible that we, we are seeing Malcolm Turnbull gradually developing in the job anyway. Uh, but one of the other points I make in the essay is, uh, you know, yes, there are all these expectations set by what he said when he became Prime Minister. But I think one of the really fascinating issues to me, which I can't quite answer myself, is why we all had such huge expectations of what he would be before that time. Um, and I tell a story about how six weeks after the 2013 election, people would be saying to me, when's Malcolm coming back? And I'd say, what? Tony Mm -hmm. has just won a landslide election. What are you talking about Malcolm for? But everybody was on the lookout for Malcolm Turnbull to come back to the opposition leadership from very, very early on in the Abbott government. And, you know, what is it that Malcolm Turnbull represented to people um, you know, was it that he was seen as a man of the centre mm. and uh, we thought uh, that the electorate had overshot in um, going to the right with Tony Abbott? Was it that, that they didn't really ever like Tony Abbott much anyway, they just wanted to get rid of the Labor government? You know, there are all sorts of possible scenarios here, but I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of our, shall we say, our relationship with uh, the current Prime Minister. 
Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And I'm leaning towards centrism and um, this idea of, I guess, the wet liberals who um, do tend to reflect much of the broader populace, definitely not all, but Australia is often seen as economically dry or conservative but socially progressive. Perhaps people saw Malcolm as a torchbearer for that uh, feeling within Australia. I'm not sure. And also perhaps it was the leather jackets on Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been. Um, yeah. But if you, think, if you think about that, Amy, the really interesting thing is that where we're up to with Malcolm Turnbull at the moment is that um, rather than being economically conservative and socially progressive, uh, he's basically in this position where he's socially conservative mm. and economically progressive. Um, now, the question is, if this budget works in the sense that, uh, you know, it, things settle down, um, you know, the there's not a lot of contention with the Senate because they've stru- structured the budget in a way where there's not going to be a lot of issues that are contentious. There will be some. Um, if if the government sort of now has a clearer strategy, if Labor's under pressure to reposition because of what the government's done, does that, uh, does that give the Prime Minister enough authority to start pushing back against the Conservatives on the social issues if he, if he thinks that this uh, is something that he can do and should do? Yes, exactly. Solidifying his position, political position, in the lead up to the next election. That will mm-hmm. be really very interesting to watch. Laura, thank you so much. It's just been a delight to have you on and to really delve into these issues and actually step back for once. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for writing these wonderful essays. Uh, well, my pleasure, Amy, and always lovely to talk to you.